0: Hi Robbie Mochrie and welcome to Scotonomics. Could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, your background and what you're busy with at the moment?
1: Ah right, well um, I'm a lecturer or an associate professor is the formal title but it means I do um, I teach economics at Heriot Watt University in Edinburgh. I've been there for over 25 years, um, and um, what I'm particularly interested in at the moment um, are issues which have to do particularly with um, the, um, financial markets, but also to some extent how those um, relate to Scottish independence and what the opportunities and challenges will be um, for Scotland because it has a very large financial sector um, and that's going to be an important part of the Scottish economy afterwards. Uh, But it could also be a very fragile part because this is perhaps the most mobile of all um, economic activities and so Scotland might just lose it overnight. Um, So there are very interesting challenges I think as soon as we start talking about finance in Scotland and independence.
0: So you sent me a paper, which I found very interesting. It's called The Politics of Financial Development. And in the paper, the author asserts that populism is responsible for uh, many of the world's banking ills. Do you agree with that? And would you like to add to that?
1: Oh, gosh. I mean, that's uh, we're we're going straight into some very large areas here. Um, But... I I would say that within political thought, there is clearly a distinction between uh, liberal democracy and populist democracy, where uh, liberals tend to be much more willing to allow the markets to work. Populists tend to want to intervene in markets. And um, I think that that's really, evidence of, for, of well over a century, is that that does not work well. Um, it sounds nice that what you're going to do is to direct um, uh, investment in the economy to areas which are going to be the most productive. But very often what happens with populists is that that isn't the outcome. Instead, what happens is many populist leaders direct investment to their friends, to their family, to their supporters and the rich get richer um but the outcome for the country as a whole is rather poor so yes um populism um and the, you know, um, I, 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 if you can get hold, hold of mark Blythe to talk about angry economics at some stage that's a, a whole area that we're starting to look at much more closely in economics now because of, of the rise of populism we've seen um i would have to see nigel farage boris johnson brexit in the uk We've got um, uh, Donald Trump, no longer President of the United States, but still making a huge amount of noise uh, off stage. We've seen um, the rise of people like uh, Viktor Orban in um, uh, Hungary. Um, We've also got um, Putin's Russia and uh, Xi's China. In all cases, what we're looking at are populist leaders who um, have been more or less efficient when they've been managing the economy, but typically less efficient uh, in managing the economy. And that's partly because they don't trust other people to make good decisions.
0: Now, the author also drills down into specific policy decisions, such as unit banking, deposit insurance and community reinvestment. This is really something in the US. Could you Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit more about those?
1: Um, types of policies? Yes, I, I mean, the, the, the unit banking one is very interesting in the United States because uh, what we have um, is a real concern that there will be um, too much power within financial institutions. And so preventing branch banking uh, stops banks becoming large. Um, it also means that banks are unstable. So in the United States, even still, we have over 6,000 banks. Um, Whereas in the UK, probably most people would be struggling to name more than I would have thought if if they could get to 10, they'd be doing well. Um, Now, Scotland, in fact, has a particular problem. It has the most concentrated banking sector in the world. Um, uh, And that goes back into Scottish history, um, where the Scottish tradition has always been that you want large banks, you want well capitalised banks, you want stable banks. Um, And that, I would have to say, is a completely different approach to how you manage some of the challenges of um, uh, financial institutions to what we had in the United States. This, by the way, comes back to the populist element, which is that um, in in many places, in many parts of the United States, um, clearly there was the huge debate in the 19th century um, uh, over the nature of state rights. Banking was largely a state-regulated activity, and particularly states, uh, agrarian states, were um, very sensitive to pressure from farming communities, which wanted to have very localised banks, so that the communities had control over them. Um, You mentioned the Community Reinvestment Act as well. Uh, That's, I think, a really interesting example in many ways of how regulation, which has good intentions, can actually have unforeseen consequences, which are really, really damaging. Um, So Community Reinvestment Act, the principle is that a bank closes down a branch, in the United States. What it has to do is to demonstrate that it is making other provisions to ensure that there is still access, particularly to credit services. So there's still going to be lending going on. And part of that was a response to a a, a practice which you didn't mention, but which I think is quite important, particularly in United States history, because so much of it has to do with excluding African-American communities from access to finance. Uh, So I'm I'm thinking about the practice of redlining, where um, credit officers in banks had maps of cities and they put a red line round areas to which they would be unable to lend any money at all, particularly for house purchase. Now, you know, that that, that sounds like, I I suppose, a crude kind of credit scoring. Oh, you live in the slums, we're not going to lend money to you. Um, Actually, what it turned out was, um, and it's not quite the right language, oh, you live in um, an African-American ghetto, we don't want to lend money to you. So uh, what it was effectively was to ensure that um, uh, what w- 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 was to ensure that banking services were um, uh, pro- appeared to be uh, non-discriminatory, but the methods of discrimination were indirect and very effective. So part of the response to that was the Community Reinvestment Act, which was essentially saying that there has to be fair access to banking across the country. Now, When I say an interesting way in which that kind of regulation can lead to all sorts of problems, one of the best ways that banks discovered around um, in the late 1990s to ensure that they could meet their um, uh, Community Reinvestment Act uh, requirements was to go down the route of subprime lending. Um, And uh, for the next 10 years, roughly speaking, the United States just sucked in money sucked in funds from all across the world, banks all around the world, in China and Japan, in Europe um, and South America, wanted to have a piece of this huge expansion of um, American home loan finance. And it all went very well until round about 2005. How does it go well? Well, you know, it, it's very easy to lend into a bubble um, where asset prices are increasing because people who are borrowing can sell their investments later and make a profit. Um, you know, this, is, this is a British problem as well. I'm sure that, uh, many, of you will re- that many of your listeners are going to be recognising the fact that we've had this kind of issue in the United Kingdom as well, um, at least twice in my career. Um, so uh, it, it's something that happens quite frequently. Um, and what happened was the bubble burst people at the at the end of the period what was happening was that banks were lending 125 percent of the house asset value you know so they, they could say oh yeah look we're making funds available to these areas which have been struggling um, for years but the cost of it was that th- that they were doing no scrutiny of the quality of their lending and so the Community Reinvestment Act, um, I think, is a re- uh, no, as I say, I think that it's really a very nice example of how you can start off with something which seems as though it's going to work well. It's going to help to direct credit to people who need it most. But the regulation itself can then be exploited by the very clever people who work for banks so that they appear to be meeting the regulation while actually what they're trying to do is to make as much profit as possible and to make that profit as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Most of them conscious of the bank that by the time, if it, you know, maybe even conscious that this is, this is unstable, this is going to go wrong, but either thinking they're going to be smart enough to step off before it all goes wrong or even better for them, somebody else will be there. They'll have moved on to another job. They, they, their success in um, lending money will mean that they've got into an even better paid job somewhere else, and someone else will have to clean up the mess behind them. So it's other people's money and other people's problems.
0: I think that brings us really nicely to uh, the nub of our conversation, which is, you know, we're, we many of our listeners will be aware of, you know, the two thousand and eight crash. And, you know, you have described some of the things that have led towards that situation. Now, when I talked to you earlier, we uh, talked about the Canadian banking system and the Canadian banking system actually originates from uh, Scottish, uh, from from the Scottish banking system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you recognise a lot of things in the Canadian banking system that would be really beneficial to Scot- to an independent Scotland, um, really, on the whole. So do you want to talk to us a little bit more about those ideas and how well, they could help okay. stabilise um, sure. the banking system here? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, I, I, I mean, um, I, I think it would be fair to say that in Canada... Um, uh the banking system certainly um during the period when canada was a colony then uh, a, a dominion um certainly depended very heavily on scots and um i have talked with fairly recently retired bankers who say that at the time they were completing their professional banking qualifications in scotland it was the canadian banks were coming in and they were looking for um uh, professionals who would be able to um uh take on Managerial responsibilities. So Scotland has long been seen as a talent pool for Canadian banks. And I think that you have to remember that when the British Empire was set up, um, uh, Canada, um, the the way that it developed, what we now call uh, Ontario, was lower Canada, uh, sorry, upper Canada, and Quebec um, was lower Canada. One was originally French, um, uh, which you can see in names like Montreal. Um, uh, But Talking about the Canadian banking system, um, yes, there are huge um, influences from Scotland. Clearly, Canada was a colony of the United Kingdom um, from 1756 when um, the British got control of what uh, was then called Lower Canada, the province of Quebec today, um, and then spreading by 1840 um, when uh, Canada becomes united, Lower Canada, what we would now call Ontario, um, all of those areas were very heavily influenced by uh, Scottish settlement. And I think that generally it's worth remembering that approximately half of the administrators in the British Empire were Scots. Um, Essentially the British Empire um, you can think of as being English money and Scottish manpower. And that worked very successfully um, for about 200 years. And places like Canada were were, were colonies where people went to settle. They didn't just go in to um, extract some money and come back wealthy. They actually went over, they took their families with them, um, and their descendants are now uh, there as well. So what we have in Canada is an awareness that the country needs a banking system, Even in the early 19th century, they were looking south towards the United States and could see that that banking system there was enormously unstable. Um, So effectively what they did with so many Scottish bankers, this was a period of time um, in the uh, the first half of the 19th century uh, when the Bank of England did not really intervene in Scottish banking. And there are some rather, I would have to say, excitable economic historians who are looking for evidence of a system called free banking. Now, free banking is essentially where you don't have a central bank. The banks are large, stable, they regulate each other if one of them looks like it's about to go out of business the others decide whether to lend it the money it needs to keep on going or whether just to say well actually this the, 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 there's nothing here this is just a shell let's just shut it down and so there are um, what, what, what we have with um, uh, what, what what we were supposed to have in, in Scotland at this time was this kind of free banking where there were approximately speaking six large banks and some smaller uh, institutions, but the six large banks were large enough that collectively they were able to um, uh, provide a kind of monitoring of the whole system. They were the, the, there was extensive branching, there was excess, um, um, uh, the, the Scottish banks were all well capitalized um, and they had pretty tough lending standards and um, uh, So the Scottish banks were seen as being large, stable and well run. And effectively, the Canadians who were getting engaged in banking, many of them, as I say, Scots emigrants, looked at what happened in Scotland, looked at the much less stable system in England, where they had small banking partnerships, looked at the um, tiny community banks in the United States and and decided that what they wanted was something which looked essentially like the Scottish system. So there were national banks um, uh, set up, um, uh, they, they again were extremely well capitalised, but I think that the Canadians developed the Scottish system to some extent fairly quickly, because one of the things which they were very clear about was that there needed to be some degree of community control over um, uh, 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 over banking. and. Um, I, I think it's also quite interesting. I mean, I've talked about access to finance for rural areas in the United States just a little bit. We see a similar problem occurring in Canada, where um, uh, farmers in Prairie provinces felt that because the banks were all in Toronto, Montreal, even in Nova Scotia, but they were all east, eastern Canada-based, western Canadians felt that they did not have good access to banking. And so one of the first things which happened in uh, 1931, when Canada became a dominion, when the, um, w- w- it w- effectively when it got pseudo-independence, I'll call it, um, the United Kingdom stopped trying to um, have any say in its legislation whatsoever, one of the first things that happened um, was that there was a commission set up, and that commission recommended the creation of um, a, a, a central bank, the Bank of Canada. Largely to allow um, better access to credit for um, uh, Canadian farmers in, in, in the Prairie provinces, and that I think in itself is quite interesting because very often what we find is that central banks emerge as a result of a crisis. Canadians had such a stable system; there wasn't a crisis. The banks were looking after themselves perfectly well. They were perfectly well. Um, uh, uh, they, they were perfectly well regulated. But the um, uh, Canadian, the, 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 the people felt that banks were not giving them the service that they required. A large section of the country was underbanked. Oh, yes, a large section, well, a large section of the country perceived itself as being underbanked. I think that that's um, perhaps um, the, the, the important thing, um, particularly in terms of politics. But yes, I, I mean, it was recognised by the government that um, there, were, there, there were problems of access to rural finance for development. And so um, this, this creates the Bank of Canada as a supervisor for the, the, the banking system. Um, it takes over responsibility for monetary issue. Um, there are no longer private banknotes in Canada. Um, and it looks very much like a standard central bank. However, um, the Canadians insisted on two things. Uh, initially, for 10 years, and then I think it's from 1983, every five years, they renew their Bank Act. Now, this is the fundamental piece of legislation which determines the powers um, which uh, banks will have in Canada. And this is very different from, say, the United Kingdom, where, um, yes, there have been several bank acts, um, most of them uh, mostly codified in the 1979 Act, but it's not a regular review. And so very much I would say that the Canadian approach is, well, we're going to decide what banks can do. And uh, if they want to have more more authority, so, for example, Canadian banks got uh, in the 1960s were able to argue that they should be uh, 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 able to move uh, more into um, uh, house purchase loans. They have to make the case for that. They have to demonstrate that they're going to be able to do it more efficiently than the institutions which are already offering these kinds of services. And with um, Uh, The Bank Act being reviewed every five years, that's also the length of a Canadian bank's operating licence. So Canadian banks uh, only get granted, if you like, five years permission to trade at a time. That, as I say, is completely different from the United Kingdom, completely different from the United States, where banks effectively have indefinite permission to carry on trading and where I would have to say the idea of bank licensing is much more to do with whether the systems are fit and proper. It's much more around prudential regulation rather than um, what has become more popular in the last few years, the ideas of conduct regulation, where we don't just think about whether the bank is making good lending decisions, but we think about whether the bank is actually providing good services to the public so the canadian system i would have to say has a much higher degree of democratic control than we see in other banking systems and i think that that is something which um, uh, if scotland becomes independent it would be worthwhile exploring whether there are whether having in effect given the canadians a template for a banking system we can now look at the way that they've developed that template and whether there are ideas which we can take back to scotland
2: robbie that's fascinating hearing about how it's done a little bit differently and looking ahead to scottish independence but i'm sure you're aware of the sustainable growth commission report and that talks about grandfathering and that report says that scotland will effectively cut and paste the financial regulation uh, of the the financial services sector as well as other regulation, which means, and, and, and another way of looking at it, that Scotland will start from a very similar, if not identical, form of regulation from financial services in London. So how far is that removed from the Canadian system? And really, realistically, where would Scottish regulation be, considering those two kind of polar opposites that you've spoke about there?
1: Right. OK, so the first thing is grandfathering is simply saying this is how we're going to set things up. If you're able to do it um, uh, at the moment in the United Kingdom, you can do it on the day after independence in Scotland. So let me um, step back just a little bit. I'm not going to um, get into an extensive critique of the Growth Commission at the moment. I, um, uh, if you if, if you do want me to, then ask me a few more questions. Um, but... What I'd have to say is that um, a huge challenge for Scotland after independence, I think, is going to be keeping its financial services sector more or less intact. And we can divide that financial services sector in two, roughly speaking. One half is banking, what we've been talking about so far, the other half is investment management. Now, investment management is completely different, it's looking after other people's money. uh, and it's much more direct financial intermediation in the sense that um, you, you, your broker buys you shares in a company um, or bonds or whatever it might be, but some kind of some kind of investment products. And Scotland manages, roughly speaking, 30 percent of all UK pension assets. It's a huge part. What we're saying, in other words, is that the financial service, that, 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 that investment management sector, in Scotland is potentially going to be a very large export earner for Scotland. And roughly speaking, what we're talking about is uh, two 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 trillion pounds under investment in Scotland. So let me just, in case people haven't heard that, that's two million million pounds under investment in Scotland. Earning probably something like an income, it's hard to say because um, many of the the companies have very complex reporting structures, but um, a a very rough estimate would be earning something like 15 billion pounds a year. That's almost 10 percent of Scottish national income. And if regulation looks like it's going to be excessively harsh, excessively burdensome, um, then it's entirely possible that these companies will do what they have done over the last 25 or 30 years. They will happily shift things around. So, for example, um, uh, Lloyd's banking group owns Scottish widows. And when they took over Scottish widows, they actually moved substantial investments from, substantial investments from England to Scotland general accident for many years was based in Perth. Then um, it uh, merged, a couple of mergers. It's now based through Norwich Union. And almost all of that money is managed in England. So these kind of shifts that we're talking about, I mean, I saw a report uh, just yesterday um, that £200 billion has been transferred from uh, England to Ireland. It's post-Brexit. It sounds like a lot, But if you set that against, let's say, legal in general, which is a £1.4 trillion portfolio, in fact, it's one medium-sized investment manager that we're talking about, shifting its assets from England to Ireland. That's enough to explain a £200 million net shift. Uh, Sorry, £200 billion net shift. So there is a possibility with the wrong kinds of regulations um, that Scotland ends up losing a large part of that. And roughly speaking, what would that mean? Um, It would be rather like going back to 2008 and having another financial crisis. It's not a great way to start a country off. So this is where I think that the people who were writing the Sustainable Growth Commission report were starting from. And it's also very much, I would have to say, consistent with the approach which the Scottish government took in 2014. Where, in some ways, uh, I mean, at one stage, in fact, Alex Salmon said that he didn't want that, that that he wanted a new settlement within the United Kingdom. Now, what he meant by that was that we were going to Scotland was going to go back, effect uh, Scotland and England were going to go back in effect to the Regal Union between 1603 and 1707. But also what he emphasized was that he wanted as much continuity as possible. And so the way to read this section of the Sustainable Growth Commission report, I think, is to concentrate on the report as emphasising the ways in which Scotland's activities, economic activity, can be completely, seamlessly um, uh, transitioning from the United Kingdom's activities so that nobody is scared, nobody moves money, and Scotland remains prosperous, or that part of the Scottish economy remains prosperous.
2: I can certainly see how you could take that perspective, but I also think that you can take the perspective of that um, the whole point of independence is to do things differently. And I don't think you'll find many Scots who are particularly in favour of this kind of incredibly soft touch approach to regulation, because you said importantly there, you know, that you can have the wrong kind of regulation that supports the financial services sector. And I would say over the last 20, 30 years, we've had the wrong kind of regulation that supported a society. So I think it's important that when we're looking at regulation that we're taking both sides of that. The who is being regulated and and why are they being regulated? On on whose benefit are they being regulated? And I would hate to think that Scotland would just take on um, what was happening in London um, for the the simplicity of it being simple um, when we're moving forward to independence.
1: I understand exactly what you're saying. Particularly what I think is important here is a concept which economists have become very interested in in the last 20 years, which is regulatory arbitrage. Now, what we mean by that is, where is a financial institution going to set itself up? It's mobile, it can be in London, it can be in Edinburgh. Which country, is which system of regulation is going to allow it the most freedom? And If people have a choice between London, Edinburgh, and perhaps Frankfurt or Amsterdam, um, it's entirely possible that they're going to look at what Scotland is proposing as a regulatory framework, and they're going to say, no, we don't want to be involved in this. This is too complicated. That runs counter, of course, to, and let me just, I don't think I've quite emphasised it enough in talking about banking. Canada didn't have a crisis. Australia didn't have a crisis. Um, why not? Because, bluntly, their bank regulators did not allow Canadian their banks to take risks, which led to destabilisation of the economies. So, when you're talking, when we're talking about right regulation, this is the, the, there's an interesting balance here. Um, do you give up some growth in the short term? but get greater stability which might mean that in the long run you're better off and with that i would say there are also important questions which come around the nature of the economy the nature of the society that you want to have because when there is a cry, when, when there's a crash some people get really bad, really get badly hit they lose their jobs they may lose their health. They may lose their family, um, you know, because it's it's such a stressful experience that they get divorced.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, I mean, I think that um, why, you know social institutions matter. The largest cause of single cause of bankruptcy in the United States is inability to pay for healthcare. I just, you know, that that really strikes me as an amazing statistic that the richest country in the world cannot provide its citizens with adequate health care. And that's a result of political choices. It's a result of political choices which they have made. Now, it might seem the same thing with banking. Oh, the most innovative banks in the world in the early 21st century were found in the United States. Then they went bust. Yeah.
2: No, I think that is, that is a really important point. And, and it harks back to, you know, the kind of the, the financialisation or over financialisation of any economy. And certainly, you know, you started the interview saying how big the financial services sector is in Scotland. And there's two ways to look at that. Isn't that fantastic? But also, you can say, well, what impact is this actually having on having on the other areas of our economy?
0: Um, you know, yeah, I, I, it sounds also to me as if the financial services sector is, is oversized for for this, you know, for the size of the economy. And you know, this is you, you'll know that this is frequently referred to as the finance curse. And you know, we talked about this, uh, you and I, actually, about how. Um, you have PhDs ending up in the financial services and actually um, making things far too complex, which is part of the reason that we ended up with the problem in two thousand and eight. And yeah, I had a, a, an acquaintance who was studying uh, for a PhD in brain science, and they they ended up leaving that PhD um, to go into not financial services per se, but some other area of the economy because that wasn't paying as well so you know when you lose we have a brain drain towards the financial services sector that shouldn't be going there it should be going elsewhere. That's a problem for a country. Um, And it's, uh, you know, for a country that's a currency issue or the dynamics are completely different. You're not scrabbling around looking for currency because you're the currency creator. What you're looking for are the best solutions to make your country function so that yep. you've got people like you talk about with the USA just don't seem to understand how important it is to have uh, a population which is uh, healthy, and alive, healthy, educated. Coming back to the finance curse.
1: Yes, this is an issue. Um, there's been some really interesting research done in the last 10 years, which suggests that countries which have financial sectors growing increasingly rapidly um, actually experience lower growth. And I was just looking at some data this morning and thinking about the fact that for the whole of my lifetime, um, in fact, slightly more than that, because I'm going back to Harold Wilson and the uh, white, you know, the, the white heat of the of the technological revolution. This was to improve British productivity, and there has been a concern um, within politics that Britain has been insufficiently productive for um, over the whole of that period. Now, the solution to that, in some ways, was, or Mrs. Thatcher's solution to that, in the 1980s. Was to let what was to free markets, and particularly to allow, excuse me, <coughs> to allow finance to flow where it would make most profits. Now that, um, in many ways, seems absolutely sensible, but as I say, you end up with this trade-off, to to some extent, between growth and stability. So, Mrs. Thatcher's government did not actually. Was not particularly successful in increasing the growth rate of the UK economy over the whole of its period. Um, In fact, uh, it may seem slightly odd, but uh, if if you if you look at the period between John Major's election in 1992 and Britain going to war in the Gulf in 2003, that was the one period in which UK growth matched the one period since the Second World War in which UK growth matched European growth. And Britain was actually starting to um, uh, reach levels of income per head, which Europeans considered normal. What did we do? We trusted our bankers and our bankers kept on saying we can do more. I mean, it's a really, if if I can put it this way, um, a bust hits some people really very hard, very quickly. A boom affects everyone. And it takes a long time to go from just being a period of solid growth to being unsustainable growth. And particularly what happened uh, in the period around 2003, if you go back and look at what was um, being discussed about finance, it wasn't, oh, we need more financial regulation. It was, we need less financial regulation. Gordon Brown, who probably did more to deregulate the UK financial economy than everyone else um, and who even in 2007, 2008 both Gordon Brown and Alex Salmond were asking Royal Bank of Scotland what they could do to help it. Taking it into national ownership would probably have been a good idea at that point. Mm-hmm. Stopping it from buying ABN Amro would have been an excellent idea.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> but instead, this was a national champion and we had to ma- we, we had to back it even though financial journalists like Ian Fraser were burrowing into the financial data and saying, this company is nearly bust. We didn't want to hear the message. Now, the message is extremely seductive to politicians. Um, effectively, what the bank said to the politicians was, we can increase the average rate of growth in the UK by half a percent per year. That doesn't sound very much. It sounds pretty boring and technical. It means people can replace their cars more often, they can buy bigger cars, they can move to a slightly larger house, they can take longer, more expensive holidays, Um, their children can go to private school. Whatever it may be, people are able to realise their dreams slightly more quickly Um, And I think that it is an important thing for parents. They want their children to be better off than they ever were. And so that long 15 year cycle or that long 15 year climb to to the financial crisis, we were being assured all the way through it that banks had worked out what had gone wrong in the past and it was going to be this time it was going to be different. Um, which, by the way, is the title of a really interesting book on financial crises. Um, This time it's different, 800 years of financial crisis. (laughs) Does that not show us
2: that, again, to come back to regulation, that, 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 that leading to this kind of soft touch regulation and believing that financial services was the answer to all of our problems is, in the short term, how we've ended up with more with more medium and long term problems, and and I'd all, I'd like to kind of highlight the role of the financial services sector in um, the renter economy, and you mentioned productivity there, and one of the reasons that the UK's productivity is so low is that there's so much money that goes into mortgages and houses and land, and in a lot of other countries, the percentage of uh, available money that goes into other things like I don't know say innovation and yeah, research and development, and creating new things is much higher than it is in the UK. So again, it looks like an independent Scotland would be saying that's all great. We're happy to start from that position. And the final point I wanted to make because it's fascinating hearing about Canada is that what what we're kind of saying through the Sustainable Growth Commission, which is still the only kind of live bit of future planning for a Scottish uh, independent economy, is to say, we're not going to copy our soul, which is in the Canada banking. This is how we used to bank. If we were left alone, this is how we would probably bank. We're not going to copy that. We're going to copy this kind of Anglo-Saxon approach to finance because we've been involved in this. this this union for a few hundred years and it just seems if we take a step back the type of banking that we should have is much more the canada model than it is what we've got in london and that's where i've arrived at that fascinating journey that you've you've given us does that seem like a fair summary of
1: where we would end up okay let me try and think into how i would be having this argument um with people who aren't perhaps your natural listeners with people who all oh, have offices in the west end of in, in the u town and the west end of edinburgh um and who are what was peter mandelson's phrase about being entirely you know uh, in, entirely relaxed with some people being filthy rich mm-hmm. well if i was talking to maybe not the filthy rich of Edinburgh, because I'm sure they're far too um, uh, well brought up to do anything that's filthy, Um, but the uncle good. If I was having this conversation with them, one of the things that I would be pointing out is, look, almost all of your investments are intended to be long-term. You're funding pensions. And if you look at the way in which banking developed in the early years of this uh, century. One of the weirdest things was Northern Rock's finance director lived in Geneva and flew in once a week. Nice gig if you can get it, I think. lovely. I I, I mean, if you gave me the choice of living in Geneva or Newcastle, I think Geneva would probably be my choice. Um, But what came out of that what came out of Northern Rock was a financial model in which essentially every May day they had to go to the markets and raise the money to pay off the loans they'd um, taken out the day before, which were being used to finance house purchase loans. Now, one of the first things that I tell my students is, yes, um, banks are engaged in maturity transformation. They take in deposits which are callable at any time and they use them to finance long term uh, uh, to, to, to finance long term investments. But that's using depositors. This was going to other banks and saying, can you see me to the end of the day? And it all worked out well while house prices were going up and mortgage uh, and borrowers were able to repay regularly, but as soon as they weren't, that might have went. Nobody wanted to be left on the hook of being the last lender to Northern Rock. And it didn't matter how much they were willing to pay in terms of interest, ch- interest nobody wanted to deal with them. Now, I think that one of the interesting things which has happened in economics in the last 25 years, in financial economics, is starting to realize that actually um, crisis isn't a bug within the system, Crisis is part of the operating system. You're not going to get rid of it in banking. And so, for people who are in the rest of the financial sector, what I would be saying is, well, hold on, what you want surely is stability more than anything else, because what you're doing is long term investment. And um, um, that kind of long term investment is really damaged if every 15 years, there's going to be a substantial crisis. So they, I would say, that they, 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 you know, what, what, what we would should be saying to this particular group of investors is, oh, and the other thing which you should know by now is that firms which have taken out an ESG mandate have been outperforming other funds for the last 10 years. And that's because if you... Robbie, of- what's
2: an ESG mandate? Oh, sorry
1: environmental, social, and governance. So you're thinking about how are you going to get towards net uh, uh, net zero? You're thinking in social terms very often about what's the relationship between the company and its employees? Thinking about the, is this company interested in having a positive impact on the society in which it lives more generally? And governance is how willing is the company to share information? How willing is it to keep make all its practices open and above board how transparent is it those companies tend to do well in the long run no surprise there they've got good practices Um, and Particularly for, you know, so essentially what I'm saying, what I would be saying to these people is we do want to have a strong Scottish financial services sector, but we want that Scottish financial services sector to be thinking about long term returns, not about short term returns. We don't want you to be worried about regulation getting in the way of what you want to do tomorrow. We want to think about regulation shaping what you're going to do in the next 10 years, the next 25 years.
0: And that, I think starts to give a different offer to these people Mm. yeah i mean fundamentally what you don't want in your country operating your in your country are a bunch of cowboys who are unregulated and in the case of northern rocks boss they don't even live in the country um you know you you want the the people in the financial services to be invested in your country and and the the well functioning of your country that you know people are well they are educated Mm. um you know that you have a mixed economy, which obviously is going to provide resilience for your country. Um, you know, and, and but these these are also responsibilities of the politicians as well. You know, and again, I would come back to that point that too many politicians think that growth is the way towards making goals happen and really understanding that when you're a currency issuer, that completely changes the dynamic of what you're what you're doing and that you are really running a country and not a business, which to a certain extent, the the, the Scottish government are in that position just now as a currency user. It's they they are looking for currency at the moment.
1: Yeah. I, I mean I, I don't think that it's so much to do with being a currency issuer or a currency user, um, so much as having to work out how to fund spending. The Scottish government just doesn't have to, really doesn't have to worry about that at the moment. Um, And that is a large part of the normal business of what government is in most countries. Um, And so my feeling about this would be that, again, government wants to have a stable economy. but really, when you think about what government is about, it's not about running a business. It's about solving problems. And indeed, if you talk to most people, if you talk to someone like, oh, I don't know, Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, and ask them, well, what, what really motivated you? I'm sure money was important to them. But if you look at the way that Bill Gates has walked away from running Microsoft um, and with his wife running a huge philanthropic foundation, um, a bit like Warren Buffett, he ha- seems to have the view that it's not important that he dies particularly rich. He can give away most of the money he's made, and okay, he can give away most of the money he's made and be richer than the three of us put together easily. Um, but what's important about that is that he enjoys solving problems. And what we need are people who are good problem solvers. Now one of the things, I mean, you've talked Karen about Karen about this to some extent, um, but, it's more than just, oh, I'm doing a PhD in brain science and now I'm going off to um, uh, write really hard code um, uh, for, a financial in, for, for, for a financial investment company or, you know, because, because of the statistics which I've done learning quantum mechanics, I can become a, I, I can become, um, a, a quant in a finance house. That's not the issue so much as the fact that systematically the best paid opportunities, the most exciting problem solving opportunities have seemed to be in finance. And in some ways, what I would want is Scotland to say, hey, we want engineers, we want, um, uh, we want scientists, we want civil servants. We want people to, we we want all sorts of occupations to be exciting to young people to go into so that, as you said, we'd have not, not a balanced economy, so that we have a balanced society the economy can look after itself this this is about society this is about people um and this is about people how people are going to lift live their lives and how they are going to live rewarding lives i was just going Go to ahead. say
0: you you make exactly the same point that warren mosler did yesterday mm. when we interviewed him you know you want you want to run the country so that your your young people want to stay there and they they they, they see exciting opportunities for themselves well, in their own country
1: yes. One of the interesting things um, since um, devolution, Scotland has started to see a reversal of the graduate brain drain. More, you know, Scot- Scot- Scottish universities attract a huge number of students from England. More of them are staying, um, and that I think is for 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 me this this is the thing which actually gives me most confidence about independence if this limited powers of devolution allow us to start to, to uh, allow scotland to start growing as a country again then independence should do so much more and i think that that's ultimately you know in terms of what are we wanting to do in the long term i think that that is the promise The other thing is that, yes, we look across the North Sea, we look up the Baltic Sea, and we can quickly list half a dozen countries which have economies which work better for most of their citizens than the UK economy. We don't have to take the UK model. Maybe we're not going to look to Canada. Maybe we should be looking to, oh, Denmark or the Netherlands. There are other places, there are other fairly small countries that we can think about which have... um, uh, similar cultures but quite different outcomes
2: i agree and, th- and that's what we're trying to do with scotonomics is to is to open h- help people open their their minds and and have a broader scope of what's going on because yep. we do too often look to the south when we should be looking uh, looking much wider
1: if we're talking about the financial services sector in scotland i think it's very important to remember that there are two parts to it On the one hand, there's banking and that's something that we use every day. And in many ways, I think that we want banking institutions in Scotland to be very local. In the period running up to 2008, banks in Scotland decided that they were going to become global. At one stage, by some measures, Royal Bank of Scotland was the largest bank in the world and then it collapsed. We're still living with so many of the costs of that collapse and we're still living with the vanity, in some ways, in which those bankers thought that they could make the country richer than it actually is. On the other side, though, what we've got are um, investment managers and those investment managers tend to be in the business for the long run. The biggest part of that in Scotland tends to be associated with life insurance and pensions. These are people who want to be able to give their, 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 their clients returns over 25, 30, 40 years. And so what they're going to take is a very long term view. But that's an international business. Almost all of its earnings are going to be exports. And so we've got to make sure that if Scotland has a strong financial services sector, that we meet the, that, that we have a good banking sector focused on the Scottish economy and an investment management sector which can look across the globe to find the best possible investments. That's what finance is going to be about in an independent Scotland.
2: And when you look at Scotland as an independent nation, can you see those two separate areas of the finance industry doing well?
1: Uh, Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, It'll be a much smaller banking sector. than we had had it, uh, particularly in the uh, the years up to 2000. I mean, I would imagine that, for example, Royal Bank of Scotland won't want to have its Gogurburn site. Um, uh, Andy Anderson has suggested it would be an excellent place for the Reserve Bank of Scotland to take over. Um, It's got a a capacity for about 3,000 staff, I believe, which is more or less what you'd want the the Reserve Bank to have. But it would no longer be the global headquarters of NatWest Group. That would go to London. And Royal Bank of Scotland would be... a fairly small Scottish bank, um, perhaps with assets, which no doubt sound huge, of about um, uh, 100 billion pounds, well, that is going to give it an income of about a billion pounds a year, which, um, uh, or, or yes, net income of about a billion pounds a year, which is, by banking standards nowadays, very small. Um, and even that, if we we're actually being really tough about it, we might say, well, that's too big for Scotland. We need to split it up. Go, go back to Royal Bank and National Commercial Bank. Um, So so potentially it's quite a
2: different um, financial services sector, but still one that's focused towards the Scottish economy and and, and doing its job to support um, Scottish people and Scottish businesses.
1: And one thing that I would certainly say is that you would want more public um, backing of many investments, I would say. So one of the things that we'd be looking for, not so much the not not so much the financial services sector itself, but the finance sector in Scotland. I think that we would be saying, well, actually, what we are looking for are long-term investments, and those long-term investments are for the benefit of society, so that government has, in some ways, um, uh, you know, g- g- government is going to be providing quite a, a, um, a quite a large part of the backing for them. And what that means, of course, is that government, and, and this to some extent comes back to bondholders, um, government and society should be making sure that it is getting, that they that they are getting the returns from those activities, not just private investors.
0: so interesting. Thank you so much for giving okay. us your time. It's been a no fantastic interview. Thanks, Robbie.
2: Bye now. Thank Thanks you. again.
0: Bye. Life. Life. Bye. Bye. Bye.
2: Well, that was episode 29 uh, with Robbie Mockery. Karen, what's your thoughts?
0: Well, I think Robbie makes a really important point that, you know, it's possible to regulate your financial services industry and, uh, and it, it can be much safer um, and more stable going forward.
2: Yeah, I think he 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 brought up some good examples of the types of things you could regulate if you wanted to do differently. Um, and I know you'd picked up that kind of um, the was it the um, finance director of Northern Rock, who lives yes. lived lived in so you know a, a regulator could say any director of a financial services company, I don't know, they could be a bit bold and say has to live in the country that their financial services business is, regulate, is regulated. You know, so there's loads of things, and, and Robbie mentioned community banking, and you know, you'd know, picked up that red lining in terms of banks who just weren't, weren't in, investing in any particular parts of the country. So, yeah, there's clearly areas that you can regulate, and the neoliberal governments that we've had from the 90s right through the early 2000s, the Labour and the Conservative governments have had the opportunity to do regulation differently and they've just gone down the same line which is very light touch regulation which is basically trying to always start is trying to um, stop the horse the horse when the when it's bolted closing the gate when the when the horse is bolted that's what the regulation looks like it's been trying to do in the UK so we can definitely do it differently and it was so interesting with Robbie saying and that seems to be a natural banking system as evidenced by the Canadian banking system.
0: Yes, which didn't experience the shocks that we had in the UK or the US, you know, because they are um, much more careful about um, regulation and what bankers and the financial sector can do in general. It's it's really important because it has a huge effect on society when it goes wrong.
2: And, and what I, one of the things I think that it helped us look at when we were speaking to Robbie was how important the financial services sector is to the economy, how big a part of it is in the economy. And it's much more than just the kind of high street bank. And I think when we're talking about banking, we are thinking about loans to individuals. And because we covered much more than banking, we looked at the financial services sector, we can see the size of that in terms of investments. And, you know, not just Um, um, not just in um, uh, your kind of high street banking, but also private banking and investment banking. And there's so much to, to, to look at. And it was just so interesting hearing that other countries do regulation and do banking very differently. Even the idea of the regional bank. You know, you go to a bank that understands the particular particularities of your region and they're able to invest in that because they know just seems so foreign now when we're looking at a financial services sector that has been created by a very different ethos from the city of london.
0: Yeah, um the other important point that he made was um about ESGs which you asked him to uh, elaborate on environmental and social governance within um these types of businesses and they are doing better in the long run. You know, so people want this they they, they want um these businesses to be not doing harm, and uh, you know, I think that's that's also something that that um, me and Robbie have discussed before in other uh, arenas. Is that you know, it, and uh, and also we discussed this with Patricia Pino as well. The the whole concept that the financial services sector, banks, investment should be taking the same thinking as doctors or engineers that they must do no harm.
2: Yeah. No, that is a really good point. And, and when we're looking, I mean, I worked in the financial services sector for four or five years, and I organized conferences on things like the capital adequacy directive and credit derivatives and operational risk. It's an area I know really well. And when I was in those uh, businesses, financial services, the financial service organization itself wanted more regulation, because it hated having to live in this incredibly risky environment. The shareholders, they were maybe thought a little bit differently. Those who were getting the bonuses thought very differently. But the businesses and themselves, businesses don't like risk. And the financial services sector, the way it's structured in the United Kingdom, is incredibly risky because they're, they're allowed to lend out so much money, have such low liquidity. They're allowed to lend out so much money on, on you know any kind of product that they want. This is really risky. So this idea that having tighter regulation is bad – for the financial services sector, which which Robbie kind of highlighted, I I would disagree with. And I think that the right regulation, it's about striking the right balance, but the right regulation keeps financial services sector happy, but also makes sure that all the kind of nefarious elements that come along with lending money are, are removed. And I do think that banks should have a very different ethos. I don't think there's anything wrong with going to a bank and them saying, we'll give you money, and, but only if you make sure that in over five years, the business is um, zero carbon emitting. I don't see what's wrong with, with banks saying it's not just about us getting a three or five percent back, but you've got to do good in the community. You know, you've got to employ more women than men in the, the business that we're going to lend to. And there's just none of that. But there is in other types of banks across the world. And that's where I think Robbie helped us highlight that we can do banking better and differently
0: yeah yeah absolutely i mean it does seem to me since um you know i i first started working um in the early 1980s that you know the, the role of banks has changed so much and we know this um that you know they they, they, they would they would advise people about their business and they, I, they just don't seem to have the capacity to do that anymore it's just mostly about giving out mortgages um and a lot of the time even the people in the banks aren't aren't even doing that advisory work that's separate people that are doing that so you know it it, it seems to me that the banks have lost their way in a lot of ways
2: yeah yeah I, I I would agree with that. I don't think they are doing what um certainly was hoped when the banking industry was set up in Scotland in the 17th and 18th century and then when that went across to, to to Canada I think banks were seen part of the community and I would love Scotland with independence to come back to that that closer idea that the banks are there to fund investment and help a community grow not there to make money from the community i thought it was interesting that um, robbie had also mentioned this financialization and you'd picked up on it as well the negative impact of having a big financial services sector Sure, it makes some money and i always say but who does it make the money from it makes the money from people who are borrowing rather than the people who are lending but this idea that all the resources of a country are sucked in to this sector well, this financial sector, I think, is really important point as well to consider as we create a new Scotland. Do we want a sector that's similar to what we have just now?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, just from a purely logical point of view, I mean, any country would not want to be too beholden to any one form of business within, because obviously that that is not resilient and mm-hmm. you, you want to be resilient as a country. Yeah.
2: And that's exactly happened. That's exactly what's happened with the United Kingdom and as all of our eggs were put into the basket, the financialisation, the financial markets in the City of London. And that was to the detriment of the whole of the UK. And the whole UK business model was that the financial services would make loads of money and would then spread it out through the economy. Half of that worked. (laughs) It did make lots of money, but there's not much evidence that it was spread out through the rest of the country. So that business model just doesn't work. And it's potential that Scotland could see itself with a similar business model unless i think we take a very different approach to not just regulation but what we want our banks to do and, and what role they play in our communities in our society and i think robbie's interview really helped us certainly helped me firm up that view on that
0: yeah i mean i found it a really fascinating interview and um, yeah um interesting very interesting
2: well, hope you enjoyed it and hope you got a lot from it. Please let us know uh, what you thought and please let us know in the comments and um, uh, drop us an email. And until next time, thanks for joining us.
0: Bye-bye.